Welcome to Unleashed at Work and Home, the show dedicated to helping veterinarians, vet techs, dog trainers, shelter and rescue workers, pet sitters, and all the other animal-crazy pet professionals manage their stress and find more joy. I'm your host, Colleen Pilar, and I'm thrilled you're here with us today. Make sure you hit the subscribe button on your favorite app so that you won't miss a single episode. This episode is brought to you by our free community, the Circle of Resilient and Thriving Pet Professionals. If you like the ideas shared here, then you're invited to continue the conversation with other lifelong learners in the community. You can find out more at ColleenPilar.com. It's the perfect place for you to learn cool stuff, feel good, and take action to create the life you love. Come join us. I'm so excited that my guest today is Sue Sternberg, who has been one of my heroes in the dog world for a long, long time. And I was asking her, like, I don't even really know how to introduce you. So I I awkwardly told her that I was going to ask her to introduce herself. So Sue, tell us who you are and what you do. I've been working in uh, the field of animal sheltering and also as a dog trainer since 1981. And uh dogs. I knew I was going to be a dog trainer since I was eight. That's, that's all I know. I, I feel like I'm, I'm more of an expert on shelter dogs, um, but shelter dogs are just dogs at a certain point in their life. Or, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, certainly some dogs never end up in the shelter. So I like to study body language in dogs. You've taught me so much about body language in dogs over the years. It's really been an amazing gift that you've given the world. And the word that I asked you to discuss with me today is discovery. Yeah. Because you have a lot of passion around um, learning new things. And you've certainly discovered, uh, for lack of a better word here, a lot of things about dog body language and behavior that have always been there, but we didn't know how to pinpoint and identify and say that has value. That is important. What do you think drove your curiosity in this field? I've always been interested in body language. And before video, I was like, I worked at the ASPCA in New York City in um, the mid eighties. I had my camera and I took slides of everything and and then I started putting together little presentations for the volunteers at the ASPCA using the slides. And then as soon as video became a little bit more accessible, I started videotaping. And I honestly, I think it's the slides and the videos that got me interested in body, body language because I always look at my videos, I review everything, and then you start to see patterns. Mm-hmm. And um, you can slow it down and see patterns. You can speed it up and see different patterns. And I honestly, I feel like it's not the videos that taught me what to look for. And then, of course, you look at 10,000 dogs doing the same thing and you can see um, the common responses, the outliers, and you can start making correlations. You see mm-hmm. this because it, and and so but I feel like it's just through video. And that's, of course, my teaching medium. Uh, if I can show somebody a video and slow it down, anyone else can see it. Right. Like You don't. You don't have to have been studying it for 40 years. If somebody just shows you the slow-mo video, kind of it's, it's ours to share and Mm -hmm. learn and, um, and understand or try to understand dogs better. It's such a powerful tool because we can back it up and see it again and then back it up and see it again, where it's like, did you see that? No, I did not show show me again. Whereas with a real dog right there in person, they're not going to do it again. (laughs) No. And by the, by the time you point it out, it's gone. Yeah. It's yeah. It's amazing. 
Yeah. It's such yeah. a powerful tool for that. Yeah. Um, and, and it's very interesting to, to have been doing that for so long, like to, to have gone from your slides to your video, were you deliberately trying to teach body language initially when you were doing the slides or were you just kind of teaching just regular, like how, how to work here stuff like there happens no. to be a dog in this picture? I was collecting um, slides of interesting mixes and purebreds in the shelter uh-huh. in New York city. And, um, and then I, I was using Dr. Leon F. Whitney's book, How to Breed Dogs, because um, he has a lot of photos in there of known crosses. He bred two, you know, two separate purebreds together and he studied inheritance of you know, vocalization during hunting or ear length or leg length or whatever. And I found his book fascinating. And then um, there was no internet in the 80s. Maybe there was, I, I didn't use it, but um, so it was like books and um but, you know, in reviewing my slides from the 80s, I go, I look back and I'm like, what, what was temperament like back then? Like, were there as many dangerous dogs back then? Were there as many borderline gray area dogs or how many really sweet, um, you know, easy dogs were there in the 80s in New York City at animal control? And so I can go back and, and look at that. So I, I just did it for my own hobby. It was just fun to capture the dogs that were there that I knew that I assessed that I was looking at. And then my friend at the time was head of volunteers at the ASPCA. And she's like, I want you to, um, I want to do volunteer training and I want you to put together some fun, you know, education for the volunteers. And I was like, I I can't do that. You know, I can't, (laughs) I can't possibly speak in public or anything. But I put together these like fun, that's when I put together a little slideshow of like weird crossbreeds because there were dogs that I took photos of there. You looked at them, you're like, oh my God, that's half rough collie, half basset hound, you know, without a doubt. Like you do not need a, a DNA test, which there weren't any back then. You just see both breeds at the same time. So I did that. And then I just started doing weird other things. I think it was the breed thing. What kind of dog is that? Yeah. That. Uh, was I think American Humane Association, which is a no, no longer it used to be a big one of the national organizations. They invited me to their conference in 19, maybe 94 or something. And they asked me to do that one, like how to figure out what breeds and crossbreeds. And, mm-hmm. um, and that kind of started me um, talking and putting together slideshows and and that yeah. was the beginning of a lot because you definitely do a lot of public speaking and don't seem do. to have any problem with it any longer. I don't. I, and I don't know when that happened. I used to be terrified. Um, and I didn't like consciously work on it. I think I just liked my material and it was fun. And uh, so I had the same experience. I, I made it all the way through college, deliberately choosing every class that didn't require anything to be spoken aloud. <laughs> yes. But a love of dogs will force us to do many things yes. that we thought we couldn't possibly do. That's right. Because, oh, wait, it's about dogs. Yes. So tell me when I when I just say discovery, what does discovery mean to you? Exploration to find something that's not that's in front of us, but maybe hasn't been discovered yet. And I feel like it is an, uh, a universal, maybe biological part of us or some of us, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like I read about Shackleton and other explorers and I'm like, ah, I, I could have done that, you know, not not uh, not like really life threatening things. But I love the idea of exploring, of finding something. And like since I moved to Utah in you know about 2009 and uh, 
my hobby out here is exploring places that no one else has. I look for dinosaur tracks and I look for dinosaur bone and I GPS it and send it to scientists that I know. And it's discovery. I want to discover. I want to you go have, places. haven't you? Yes. I mean, yes. Yeah. Tell us about that. Dinosaur tracks um, are so easy to spot. Like dog behavior, so hard to teach yourself, you know, <laughs> all the years and years of study, but like um, once I sort of learned what to look for and began to study it, I can see those patterns anywhere. And really? I'm pretty good at, at, I'm pretty good at finding them. Um, I think, I honestly, I think my eye is trained to see dog behaviors. Like the, my brain has practiced to 10,000 hours of dog behavior or videos or whatever, slowing things down. So for me, like looking at you know, a rock outcrop, I can see when you're looking for tracks, you're uh, often looking at a pattern, right? Like the, the um, non-random footstep pattern. So you might look at um, a series, you're looking for a series of G geometry, um, or you're looking for a particular shape. And uh, once I started learning the shapes, I, I've made two huge track discoveries from my car looking out the window. I know yeah. you made one. I didn't know you'd made two. So tell yeah. us about what those dinosaurs were. <laughs> I was going to take my friend hiking and, you know, she's like, I'd like to try and see if we could find dinosaur bones. So I was like, great, you know, and I just picked this random area that had looked fun. It's off a dirt road, off a dirt road, off a dirt road, public land, no trail. And, um, and so I pulled in opposite uh, off the dirt road, pulled off um, to park. And when I parked, it was, the time of year, the time of day. So it's November where, and November the shadows are low and long, which is really good for track hunting because it, it, you know, illuminates the, mm -hmm. the, sh the shadows and you can see tracks better. I didn't know that at the time, but we parked and there was a slab, a big rock that about the size of a VW beetle that had fallen off a cliff. And as we parked, I looked at it and I saw a pattern like dimples sticking up out of the rock that had fallen down. And I said to myself, oh, my God, that is such a track site. I said, it's so obvious. Um, I'm sure it's already discovered. I'm going to leave it for when we get back to the car and I'll tell my friend about it. We'll go we'll go check it out. So we go hiking. We, we had a great time hiking with the dogs. We didn't find any dinosaur bone. Um, and we get back to the car and I look up and I'm like, oh, hang on, you know, hang on, Linda, because uh, there's tracks on that rock and I want to go look at it. And I was like, don't get excited. They're so obvious. This is obvious, you know, and it's right on the road. <laughs> it's obviously an already discovered site. And we got out and um, they were beautiful. They're the kind of tracks that stick up. They're the under tracks, the fill, right? And so the softer layer in which they had mm -hmm. put their feet the indents, the softer layer had weathered away. And what was left was the actual stuff that filled in the tracks. Um, and it was 12 steps. You could see back feet. You could see front feet. You could see claws. Wow. I didn't know what kind of dinosaur. And I sat on it for a while because I was like, this is so obvious. This is a known site. Um, and then my friend Linda, while we were looking at that slab, looked down and she found some three little three toes. And there was a bunch of stuff around. So I finally... Um, sent it to the uh, BLM paleontologist. And, you know, I'm like, oh, I'm sure this is already discovered. And she's like, uh, no, no one has discovered this, even though the gas pipeline company has put out, uh, had already hired people to survey and search. It turns out it is the longest stegosaurus trackway in North America. 
And it, it was like really? a profound discovery. Yeah, it was really cool. They published the whole site. Um, and uh, what was amazing is I've been there a dozen times since. And you can't see the, you cannot see the really? dimples. It was the time of day, the light. It was, I was just there at the right moment. What a gift. Wow. That is it, so cool. It was it's so cool. amazing too, that you know, it's there and you know what to look for and you still have trouble seeing it when you go yeah. back. Yeah. It's not at all like it was that first day. And then on the way driving to that site, there was uh, way up high on another uh, cliff, these circles, like it looked like three circles and, and not like, not that obvious, but enough that I said to myself, I wonder if those are tracks. And I passed it, I don't know, five times. And finally I was like, God damn it, I'm, I'm going to pull over and I'm just going to get this out of my system. I'm going to hike up there and they're either tracks or they're not. And I got up there and they were tracks and it led to this whole like plateau area of other tracks. It was amazing. It's a significant find. Wow. Do you know what those ones are? The big circles? They are some sort of a theropod. And the reason why they look, they look like sauropods are like gentle, slow moving, elephant-like feet, sort of like round tracks. And that's what it looked like from the car. But when I got there, the round thing was the fill. Like there are these three-toed tracks and that whatever covered it, the first layer was hard. So it had sort of a pancake covering. And mm -hmm. like one of the pancakes had fallen out and underneath the pancake is the perfect dinosaur track. Anyway, I love... Like I live for that discovery. I live for, like it gives purpose to my hiking and purpose to wandering with my dogs. And it's always in areas that no one, I want to go where I don't think anyone has gone except maybe an ancient Puebloan Indian, you know, a thousand years ago. Yeah. Um, and how far are those areas from your home now? Probably I can drive to most of them in 20 to 30 minutes. Wow. Yeah, I know that like sometimes when you're posting pictures, your dogs can be so far from you and that just extraordinary scenery. And I think yeah. of my little suburban neighborhood with the yards and the people right next door. It's, and it's heaven. It's heaven here. And like, cause Chappie, my Chappie's reactive. And so I don't like to hike where I might see another dog. And I definitely don't want to hike where somebody might be with an off-leash dog. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I have every day I can hike all day with them and never see anyone else. And it's a gift for me. It's a gift for them. And one of your discoveries is named after you, isn't it? Yeah, I actually have, I have a couple of sites named after me. Um, and, um, and I have, I have a, a dinosaur skeleton site, uh, not a complete skeleton uh, that's not named after me, but in, if, I don't know if you looked at, I guess, the records, the field records in Utah, my name would be there on, on a lot of stuff. I have an insect track discovery site, which, which to me, I, I sat on that for a long time. Like on, at the end of this long hike are these smooth brown slabs with little squir squirmy nematode, you know, where a worm has gone through the sand. And then there's like tiny little, what looked like kind of a water slider. And, um, I sent that to the, the track expert paleontologist in Denver and, you know, didn't get, no one got excited. And, and I'm like, come on, people. These are hundred million year old insect tracks, like the conditions that had to prevail mm -hmm. to let these insects. It, and so I sent it again and he sent, so the, the guy in Denver sent it to an entomology, paleoentomologist specialist who said, actually, um, it is an interesting site because no one has discovered 
insect tracks in that formation in that particular time period. So that's got, we went back and did field work there. Um, that's not published, but I'm sure in a couple of years it will be. Um, so I have, I have like a bunch of places. <laughs> that is so cool. It's just, what a it's, fascinating thing. It's so much fun. Because of that, because you've done all of this with the dogs where you dove in and learned all of that. And then you've taken it now into your, into your Utah world and discovering everything about dinosaurs here. How has that changed you? What, what does this do for you? Um, I don't know. I, I, I think I'm an obsessive person or I can be. And, um, and so I'm obsessed, obsessed with dinosaur tracks and bone and finding them. And I don't know, I look forward to it every day. Obviously like I can't uh, cause of my knee right now, I can't go out on these hikes uh, for another couple of months. Um, but there's snow on the ground, so I'm a little limited. So I'm happy about that. <laughs> um, and we need the water. Like I want to make a paleontological difference in the world as well. I want to make a difference in the dog world. Obviously, that's been my whole life. But now I'm like, I also want to make a contribution to paleontology with <clears throat> my discoveries. I want to give purpose to my wanderings. And I don't know, it, it it just makes me so utterly happy. And then I'm sharing it with my dogs. So the joy is being shared and I can see what they gain from being out there, just interacting with the natural world in, in as safe a place as, as you could imagine. You know, it's just, there's no cars. Um, there's no people, there's no other dogs. There are really no snakes to worry about out here. There's, we don't have enough water. How often you know? do you get to do it when your knee is cooperating <laughs> every day <laughs> I have to bargain with myself to um, get actual other work done because the allure of going out is so great and then I'm limited in June or July and August when it's just so hot so then I can only go out early in the mornings and then I'm forced to work on what you know other things uh, during the other parts of the day but otherwise if I can get out every single day I will and and ev- like I'll I'll drive out to a place where I want to explore, and on the way I'm like, look at that ridge. Remember that I want to explore that ridge, and it's out. It, it's there's literally hundreds of thousands of acres of public land out here. It's just heaven and uh, endless, endless exploration. How do you remember where you've been and where you haven't been? Oh, here's the beauty. Here is the beauty of Utah. <laughs> why it's such perfection out here. It's all open desert. So like, um, I, I'm from up, you know, upstate New York. I've lived in New England. I'm no, notorious for getting lost, right? Because up there, it's all trees and, and you know, the paths, there's this. And out here, um, I've gotten lost a couple of times, but never really lost. Like, first of all, you can literally see for 50 miles. And so if you're ever even unsure where you are, climb to the highest place, and you can see your car or you can see the airport or you can see, you know, um, some landmark where you know where you are. Ah. And um, that's the beauty of it. Like you can't. It's really hard to get lost. And um, I have been a little bit lost with the bad panicky feeling, but never it's yeah, I'm never that far. And I always I go alone most of the time. So I always let a friend know where I am. And uh, but um, but it's not scary in that way. And And it's like. In New York State, we had to worry about rattlesnakes. We had to worry about black bears. Um, 
and there were deer everywhere for the dogs to chase. Mm-hmm. And um, out here, like maybe there's mountain lions, but they're not habituated at all to people. So, and they're not really a threat where I go hiking. There's hardly any snakes where I go hiking because there's no water. And um, it's, you know, there's, there's nothing out there stalking me or trying to kill me. And there's no coyotes packing up for the dogs. There's just, it's, it's safe. It's so open. It's so beautiful. And it's still relatively unexplored. I feel so grateful to be here. Yeah, it sounds absolutely amazing. My son was stationed at Hill Air Force Base in Utah, which is north of Salt Lake City. And so my only experience with Utah is like Salt Lake City and a little bit north. But I remember being in Salt Lake City and just telling him I felt like I was on the moon. Like the geography (laughs) was so different to me than the East Coast where I live Yep, that I was just walking around with my mouth hanging open. So I can't even imagine being like where you are, where it's even more spread out and more like that. It's just, just extraordinary and and gorgeous, but awe-inspiring and and a little unsettling for me at first. I mean, he just kept laughing at me. He was like, no, it's not that weird, mom. Like it is. It is. (laughs) And it is unsettling, uh, particularly for people from the East, because you can't process the distance the cars are, it, it's, you have to get used to it. It's amazing. Yeah. So it is literally unsettling. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that you say that because he was laughing at me considerably. Apparently he just landed there and thought that was fine. <laughs> and I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> well, most, most of these coast people are like, I, I don't, I don't understand. I've never seen this much open space without an ocean. Like yeah. that's our point of reference, right? In the East. Yes. Yes. And I, and I do think for many of us from the East coast, and I I think this is actually hardwired that we feel a sense of peace and and expansion when we can see at a distance, which is why we love mountaintops or going over a hill where you just go like, I can see so far. And then it goes away into the trees or whatever. And it's very interesting um, physical sensation, at least for me, when I can actually have that sudden moment of discovery actually i mean that's what it, it is. is it's sort of like it i is. can actually see that's yeah. so cool oh so fun um okay so you have you have lots of passions and when you said about like forging into the unknown it made me actually think of star trek <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and yeah discovery yeah. um and you also are an accomplished fiddlist correct like you I do all the things. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so these are like all parts of your personality, which you described as obsessive. I won't, but <laughs> we'll, we'll, uh, but do you see connections between some of these various areas or do you see them as distinct? Oh, that's interesting. I think I must see them as distinct because I, I have a hard time toggling between them, I think. Mm. Um, like when I'm playing my fiddle, I'm either playing my fiddle every day, you know, and learning new tunes, um, or I'll go through periods for months where I'm not playing at all. And I'm not a fiddler then. Then I'm a paleontologist or, um, you know, or uh, an artist or, you know, I, I don't really consider myself an artist, but I can I do like painting. Mm-hmm. Um but I think I have trouble uh, quickly switching hats. So I must see them pretty um, separate. Although I think they all come from the same core. Maybe it is exploration and discovery, 
right? Creative, something new. Did you hear about the monolith that that was discovered? Yes. In, and it um, it bothered me at first. I knew it wasn't an alien. I knew it was human made. Um, but what bothered me about it was, you know, it looked pretty early on that it was some artist putting, um, you know, their their thing out there. And I and and then quickly in this in the area people found out the GPS coordinates and then people flocked there and they pooped and they left their litter. It was disgusting and they had to remove it. But what broke my heart was, I'm like, why, why would anyone look at any, any place around here and say, I want to put something beautiful there. Like it is already so beautiful. Every, Mm -hmm. every footstep is a museum of, of just not just natural history, but of, of beauty, like the rocks that are on the ground here, the formations, it's a staggering beauty. The thought that one would have to put a work of art out there, you know, it didn't sit right with me. And um, so I don't remember why I got, but just, I find it just, just beautiful out here every, every day, every, like every sunrise, every sunset, just amazing. Yeah. And there's such power with that in the, um, in the via character strengths, it's, it's 25, 24 or 25, um, character traits and, and you can sort of sort them by which ones are your top ones. And one of them is the appreciation of beauty and excellence. And with some of my clients who have had that, they're like, well, like, what good is that? And I'm like, oh, wow. Because you're the person who can walk around going, do you see, you know, that's the photographers of the world and, and the paleontologists yeah. and the people who can see the patterns and people who can yes. appreciate all of these things. And it's not one of my top five. It's one of the ones that I really admire in others, you know, where mm-hmm. I, I see that I enjoy spending time with somebody who has that gift because they show me things I hadn't seen before. And they, they give me a new shift, a new perspective. And so I love yeah. that. Yeah. And I think your point about the monolith being not an improvement, like yeah. you had beauty and then you add into it. Why? Yes. Yes. <laughs> and and why, why do we flock to that then? Like the new thing right. that's here is not an improvement. Why weren't you coming here anyway? No, no. So if, if somebody was talking to you and they said, well, I think that's amazing that you do all of this creative stuff and you have so many um, outlets and passions. I don't have any outlets or passions. I just kind of do my work and go home and watch Netflix. What would you suggest is like a way to stick their toe in and do some discovery? I think people say things like, oh, well, I could never learn to play an instrument. I'm not musical. Or I would, I'm, you know, I'm, I would never take an art class because I'm not artistic. And I'm like, that's only if you think you have to be good at something. Like, that's <laughs> not the end goal, right? The the but I, especially for dog people, because it's so hard to, it's so great to work with dogs and it's so hard as well. Like sheltering is not the easiest job doing rescue. It's not, it, there's moments of intense gratitude and, and feeling good, but it can be um, hard. We should all be taking lessons. Like people should routinely sign up to learn to do something they don't know how to do or and not because you're like, well, I want to learn how to draw because I think I could, I think I have a talent. You learn to draw so that you're there in the position of not knowing how to do it. And you're there being taught and you're there um, to feel that sort of vulnerability, the frustration. And because you'll never know if you're good or not. 
you'll ne- and it doesn't really matter. You'll never know if you find peace in the drawing. You'll never know if something, and very often it's just one instructor, one teacher who is so inspiring that you're like, I want to try, I want to do this. So I don't know, lessons in, in, in doing something. And I think creativity is what's really important because I think it forces you to give up on some perfection or final product, like even cooking, you know, like just cook. Um, Cooking is a huge creative outlet. You can start out by following the recipes, but then after you do, I don't know, maybe you make 10 pound cakes and maybe on the 11th, you're like, I wonder if, Mm -hmm. you know, um, and so just to do things outside of your own sphere in particular, I think it's really important. And um, I also think, so learning anything, do not be stopped by whether you've told yourself you're good at something or not, or whether you think you have two left feet or not, whatever, like just go out there and try things. Um, I had no interest in paleontology when I moved out here. Really? I like none, never, I was never the like kid who knew dinosaurs. Um, I loved rock collecting. I love colorful rocks. And so I definitely did that. And then I just sort of got curious, like somebody had picked up a rock once and said they thought it was a dinosaur bone. And I, and then I just became curious. And now it's a passion. If I just told myself the story that I, I didn't like dinosaurs or I wasn't interested in paleontology, I wouldn't have done that. And I love the idea of letting go of being good at it. Like just oh, do yeah. it for the experience and just yes. um, not try to be good at it. That actually brought to mind a memory when you were talking about that. That many years ago, and I honestly don't remember how many, probably at least 15, um, you had written a book and I was at a conference and I bought your book and a dog trainer I was with also bought your book. And she was like, let's go have Sue sign our books. And I said, no, she has a long line and that's, no, no I don't want to be a problem. I don't bother her. And <laughs> she was like, come on, come on. We're and I was like, no, I'm not going to do it. No. So she took my book and she comes back to me. And gives me my book. And when I open it up, it says, Colleen, be brave, Sue Sternberg. <laughs> and I was like, what did you say to Sue Sternberg about me? <laughs> and she said, I told her that you wouldn't come with me because you're too shy to come talk to people. <laughs> I was mortified. And yet I have never forgotten. Be oh. brave, you know, like try something new, be brave enough to try something. Um, So thank you for that. uh, Because I I haven't been a person who's just dives into new things and tries new things. I've always been the one who's like, well, I don't know if I'm going to like that. Yeah. But I was so embarrassed that she had gone up there and outed me (laughs) as being like the wimp back there in the corner. But I also didn't want to trouble you in any way. Like, oh, no, no, no. I get that too. I so I understand that. But (laughs) never feels that way on my end. Yeah. It's so funny how, how some of these things go full circle, but I do love, um, well, first off, thank you for that because I have not forgotten it. I mean, as you can tell, I have not forgotten Colleen be brave exclamation point. (laughs) And I have taken many, many difficult, brave actions since then. Um, and they've all been hard, (laughs) but there's that discovery that like, Ooh, Ooh, I wonder, I'd like to learn more about that, which is so, so cool. Um, It's been really, it's been really 
exciting to me to listen to the passion with which you talk about the things that you love. And that I think lights everyone up when someone loves something just to love it. Like it doesn't have to have a purpose or a value. You like going out, whether you find the tracks or not. Yes. Like the experience. Yes. Yeah. I remember I was with a bunch of musicians and um, somebody had a friend who owned a guitar factory and I had no interest in learning how guitars are made. I mean, you know, it's interesting, but, and they were like, you know, come, we're going to, we have this afternoon free and we're, we're going to go and take a tour of the guitar factory. And I was like, okay, you know, I wasn't thinking it was going to be great. And the person, the guitar maker who took us around was so passionate and so proud and so, um, it was the, like the most amazing afternoon because of him, because of what it all meant to him and how, how much he shared that. And like, I didn't become a guitar maker. I don't play the guitar or anything, but it was such a meaningful afternoon. And, and that, um, I always, I always think about that. You know, it, it's like, I asked my nephew who just started college, you know, what classes are, do you like? And he's trying all these weird classes and you can hear his interest, you know, in, you know, Persian studies or in archaeology. And a lot of it is the professor. A lot of it is just, and and you don't know, like we tell ourselves stories about ourselves, like, oh, I'm not good at math. I always tell myself that. But I think it's so limiting, right? We just don't know what we could do. It's like with taste. I remember growing up, I hated cooked tomatoes, like anything with tomato sauce, I wouldn't eat. And then I don't remember the day, but somehow I must've tried a tomato sauce. And I was like, Hey, I like tomato sauce. And then I liked it from ever from thereafter. And it's, you know, I, I think these, these things, it's too easy to just think we know ourselves and what we're good at and what we're not. And so we just don't. Yeah. Don't know. Yeah. And I like that thought as just a framework of, you know, the best discovery is really discovering who you are and what mm-hmm. you like and what is meaningful and purposeful to you, um, which is hopefully a lifelong endeavor for all of us. I, yeah. I, I love that as a way of kind of centering it. So um, if people want to learn more about you and your work, how could they do that? Um, I, I resurrected a, an old website, uh, suesternberg.com. And uh, it has a link to my YouTube channel. So I've got some dog behavior videos on there for free. Um, I did a series of kind of campy um, short training <laughs> training videos for um, uh, Embark uh, last during the pandemic, during the summer. And I posted them because I was like, oh, I put a lot of effort into these. They're a little ridiculous, but they're there. Um, <laughs> and I, my Etsy site where I have some uh, pendants that I paint and stuff that I, I apparel and, um, and a link to where you can get books and DVDs and my email. So people can contact me if they want to contact me. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I really love talking to you today about discovery. This was so fun, Sue. I'm so glad that you were able to do this. It was great. I so appreciate you having me. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Unleashed at Work and Home. I invite you to come learn more at ColleenPilar.com, where you can be steady, be strong, and be long.